This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit SalemPresWS.org. That's SalemPresWS.org. We believe preaching is best when experience is part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Usually we meet Sunday evenings in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We hope to return to that soon. And as you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll come with us when we can gather in person. sermon passage for the evening comes from the um, book of Romans. We're going to start a new series in the book of Romans. And the scripture passage is found in your bulletin. And as you see there, we're going to be looking at the first 17 verses in the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart For the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That, by the way, was one sentence. Paul does a lot. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written The righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
So, um, again, we're starting in our sermon series on the book of Romans, which will take us all the way through Thanksgiving. And that is because Paul um, writes here to the church in Rome um, his most complete and most important letter. It's the most mature letter. It is the most theologically developed letter. And since Paul is the first witness to the gospel, his letters were written before the gospels were written. So actually, it's an earlier window into what uh, the proclamation of the church was like. Um, Since Paul's letters are the first example we have of the proclamation, and since Romans is so central to the letters of Paul, I think we have in the book of Romans um, the best exposition of what the gospel is, which Paul says is is about Jesus Christ, our Lord, who he describes in verse 3 as both God and man, descended from David according to the flesh, human, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. Um, The great mystery of both the divinity and humanity of Christ, two natures, but one person, right there in one verse. So that just shows you how aware uh, Paul is of the the mystery of the gospel. And he begins uh, the book of Romans in verse 16 and 17 with this beautiful, quick summary of the gospel which was the thing that changed Martin Luther's life and brought about the Protestant Reformation. And I'll just read the most salient parts of those verses. He says in verse 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. I mean, that's the whole letter in a way, in a nutshell. And if you don't know anything about Christianity or if you're pretty new to the faith, Uh, This is a great way to be introduced to the most essential nature of what Christianity is about. And so I want to look at this little encapsulation of our faith um, in two parts. First of all, what the gospel itself is. And then, as he describes it, it is power. The gospel has power. And I want to look at the nature of that power. So first, the nature of the gospel, and then the, the power that it wields. So those two things. First of all, um, the gospel is about righteousness. It's about God's righteousness. It's also about our righteousness. It says in verse 17, in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Other translations say the righteousness from God is revealed. I think it's both. It's both God's own righteousness in his saving activity and the righteousness that he gives to us as those who are saved. But the idea is this word righteousness. And that word is not a word that is used very often. I don't use it in my common parlance very often. Um, But I think that even though we don't use the word a lot, it is something that we all um, desperately long for. It is, in some ways, the main quest of all religion, which is to be right with everything. To be um, right within ourselves, with other people, certainly with God. Um, I mean, think about what makes you anxious. It's usually that things are not right with um, money, perhaps, or they're not right with your mental health or with your job or with your body and your physical health. Those are the type of things that generally make us anxious when things are not right. 
Think about what keeps you up at night. Um, it's often that things are not right with some kind of relationship, whether it be your parents or your children or your siblings. When things are not right, then everything goes wrong. It feels wrong. Think about a time um, maybe in your life when you were most not right with someone, when things were really out of joint, out of kilter with someone. We were at odds with some neighbors at one time in our life, and it was just awful how much that weighed on, on us to be not right with someone who was a neighbor. Um, also, remember a time I had a job where my colleagues at some point began to shun me, and I would walk through the, the lounge, the faculty lounge, and nobody would talk to me. And things were not right so much that I, it was uh, absolutely uh, miserable every day. Um, and so my point is that uh, if a neighbor or then a colleague or, you know, the closer you get to your central core identity, if things are not right, it's worse and worse and worse. If things are not right between me and my wife Margie, um, I, it, I'm pretty inconsolable. I mean, even food or sports, nothing can really help. I can't really enjoy much of anything because my identity is so tied to that relationship. And so if things are broken at the very heart of your identity with your maker, with your creator, who is closer to us than anyone else, even our best friend, I mean, how much anxiety and depression do you think is caused by that? How much guilt in your life? How much shame? Even if you don't know it, that there Things being out of joint and out of kilter with the creator himself. I mean, nothing can be fully right. And we might not even know it because it's so much in the background of our lives. But Lucinda Williams, who's a songwriter that I love, she has a song called Get Right With God. And you feel the burning in this song and the aching that that essential relationship be healed. She says, I would burn the soles of my feet I would burn the palms of my hands if I could walk righteously again because I want to get right with God. Yes, you know you've got to get right with God. There's this deep longing, I think, in every human heart, whether they know it or not, whatever religion they are part of, to be right with God. And the, the scandal of the gospel, which is also the good news of the gospel, is that no one is right with God. That no one is righteous, no, not one, as Paul says in Romans 3.10. And that's great news. As a mentor of mine used to say, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are. Um, because it's actually a relief to know that we're all broken. We're all equally broken. That um, we come into life with no chance of righteousness because fundamentally our relationship with God is just not right. And um, trying to be right and figure out a way to make that happen um, without the gospel on your own, by your own energy, your own steam is absolutely exhausting. And we all fall into that pattern. It's often been called by theologians works righteousness with a little hyphen between the two words, works righteousness, because it's like being on a hamster wheel where you just go around and around and your little Hands and legs are spinning frantically to try to make things right, but you can't make things right. That's what the book of Romans comes out and immediately says in chapter 1 and 2. And then concluding in 3, he ends up saying, um, no one does good, not even one. Um, they've all turned aside. They've together become 
worthless. No one seeks God. No one understands. That's the whole point of the first chapters is this prosecution where we realize that no one is right and that we can't make it right ourselves, that there's a chasm between us and God. It's kind of like trying to swim the English Channel. You know, if I got 500 yards out um, from wherever you, you leave from Brighton or whatever in England, um, even 500 yards out, I'd be drowning no matter how much inspiration I was given, no matter how many crowds around me were cheering or inspirational posters. Uh, I would not be able to do that. And I would very quickly realize I could not make that journey. And the gospel is, is a boat that comes right up next to us. And uh, it says, you know, clearly um, this is not working. You cannot do this. And so get in the boat. Um, let me take you over there. Only I can do this. That the, that the gospel bridges the chasm that is the unrighteousness in our lives, the brokenness between us and our creator. And the gospel is the opposite of works righteousness. And this is probably the key verse. This is the verse that opened the, the, the gates of heaven for Luther, as he said. Um, in the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith. So it's not a righteousness from the bottom up. It's not a grassroots righteousness from us. It's a righteousness that comes down like rain from heaven and waters the ground. It is from God. It is from faith to faith, which means at every step, A, B, C, D, E, F, G to Z, from A to Z, the whole Christian life is lived in faith. And faith is uh, not another kind of work. It's not a thing we do. It's not part of works righteousness. Faith is not another kick on the hamster wheel or another effort. Um, If I just believe strongly enough, then that will help me to repair things with God. No, faith is actually getting off the wheel and saying, this is not working. My my attempts to swim the English Channel are not working, and I am going to give up and just go limp and let God bring me into the boat. It's, it's, um, as the, the Westminster Confession says, it is receiving Christ and resting on him alone for our salvation as he is presented in the gospel. It's letting him carry us all the way. So that is the gospel. It is uh, synonymous with the free righteousness of God, a gift from God from above. That's point one. And point two is if you believe in that kind of righteousness, uh, power is unleashed. Uh, Mental power, uh, cognitive power, the power of, of new insight, the kind of power that came when Copernicus realized, wait a minute, uh, the sun is not going around us, we're going around the sun. You know, that insight unleashed tremendous power in the Western world. Or when Louis Pasteur realized, wait a minute, I, it's not that human weakness causes diseases, it's that there's these things called germs, um, these little viruses that get in us, those cause diseases. That insight just created an explosion in healthcare around the whole world. Or when Luther realized, wait a minute, I don't have to enter into the system of works righteousness of the medieval church. I can just have faith and God will hear me and is pleased by me. These three insights, you know, changed the world. They have created in many ways the modern world. And so, uh, and so the power of the gospel is a mental cognitive power that, that releases this explosion in our lives. And it creates a new kind of obedience that is very different from typical obedience. Um, Paul calls it the obedience of faith in verse 5. The obedience of faith. 
um, which is not a forced obedience. It is not a coerced obedience. It's not a obedience that is manipulated, um, which parents have to do a lot of times with, um, you know, timeouts or uh, incentives. If you do this, then I'll give you this. If you don't stop doing that, I'm going to take this from you. Um, that is not the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith um, is more like uh, you are totally forgiven. I love you. You don't have to do anything ever again to be saved. Now what are you going to do? And the result of that is just gratitude. It's just a release. It's power is released. Think about an offering of the church. Uh, in some churches, I know in the Mormon church, they just take your checkbook. They see how much you make and they just deduct 10% from your account. Um, or other churches will manipulate you and say, if you give money to us, God will give money to you. Um, think about that, which is more like a works righteousness offering versus the way that Austin, uh, our pastor does it here where he says, you know, I don't, I don't want you to feel any pressure to give. Um, no one is going to evaluate your generosity and no one's going to even know about your generosity. It's not going to do anything to your standing at our church, whether you give or not. That's completely different. And when you hear that message, it actually makes you want to give because it's not coerced. You're not being manipulated. Um, when the pressure is off, it actually empowers you. And so that's why Paul says in verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the power. Notice it doesn't have, doesn't say it has power, but that it is power. It's, um, it's like um, one theologian compared it to a ghost pepper where the ghost pepper looks very innocuous when you see it, and you would never think that inside of that ghost pepper is this hidden fire, this incredible power. But if you bite into that, if you believe in the gospel, then suddenly there's an explosion in your mouth. Uh, verse 16 says, It is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. So that's your part, is to have faith in it, to receive it, to rest upon it. But... Um, it's not just a one-time belief. It's from faith to faith. It's all along the way. It's, you have to keep savoring it and keep um, like a cow chews on cud. Or if you take a bite of a perfect dessert, your favorite dessert ever, and you don't want, it, you don't want to swallow that, but you just keep tasting it and savoring it, uh, that's what changes you. Is when you take a verse like the one we have here in verse 16 and you just keep thinking about it. When you memorize a verse like, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. If you take that and keep thinking about that and you hold that in your mind and bring it back into your thoughts all the time, you keep puncturing your thoughts with that, then that will unleash power. Or listen to this question 23 from the Heidelberg Catechism. How are you made righteous before God? This is question 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And I would encourage you to look this up and memorize this. How are you righteous before God? Only by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Only by faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the explanation. And I absolutely love this. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments and never kept any of them and am still inclined to all evil, yet God without any merit of my own out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never committed any sin, and as if I myself had, accompanied, had accomplished all the obedience 
which Christ has rendered for me. Now we're going to unpack that more as we go through the letter of the Romans, but that is the power of the gospel. And those of you who are on Instagram, you missed the Heidelberg Catechism, but you're, you're about to come back, I think, uh, into our stream. Those of you who are on YouTube, I'm going to just keep going. Um, that power from the Heidelberg Catechism, um, the power of uh, Romans 1.16, that thought is what recreated Paul's very identity to the core. And this man who was a, a proud Pharisee, um, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a man that you would not have enjoyed being around. Um, this man, Paul, by the power of that gospel that you heard about in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, Saul, the proud Pharisee, became this man named Paul, which means little. And uh, he called himself a servant of Christ Jesus. And he says in Philippians 3.9 that I don't have any righteousness on my own that comes from the law. But I only have that which comes from faith in Christ. So believing in that, uh, having that sense of yourself as someone who has no righteousness on your own, but who has received this waterfall of constant righteousness, that that melts your heart. That's what changed Paul from a proud proud man um, to this incredibly humble servant. I mean, you can see his heart melted because of the way he describes these people he used to hate. Pharisees generally disliked greatly people who were Greeks and barbarians and people who were foolish. Uh, But in verse 14, he's saying, I want to bring the gospel to the Greeks. I want to go to the barbarians. I want to go to the foolish, the people I despise. I I want to go and teach them the gospel. I want to preach the gospel. But then he also says, I want them to encourage me. So you see the humility in verse 12. I long to see you that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. In other words, I want you Greeks, you barbarians, you foolish, you former slaves, um, the women of the Church of Rome who would have been looked down upon at that time in the Jewish uh, religious circles, all these people that Paul would have thought, they have nothing to teach me. He said, I want you to encourage me. I mean, imagine him pleading uh, on his hands and knees, on his face, asking for God in verse 9, Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. That is a changed man. That's what the gospel can do. That's the power of the gospel, to recreate your identity. It was like a song that was calling his name, which is why he says, I am eager to preach the gospel in verse 15. I am eager to preach it to you who are in Rome. It's like it was calling him. Um, like the elemental spirits calling uh, Elsa. If you've seen Frozen 2, there's a song where the, uh, the elemental spirits call her to be, to be this, um, you know, who she really is deep down, which is, which is like an apostle. Uh, and then she calls back, she responds to that song. Actually, the, the little song comes from the end of Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, which is an, an odd, <laughs> odd piece of trivia. But look it up. Um, So anyway, the the free righteousness of Christ called his name and said to him, and it says to you, stop trying to earn your righteousness. Stop trying to construct your own identity to please people to to get approval from God and let me give it to you. And I want to end with um, uh, an illustration from a movie that I absolutely love, one of my favorite movies called Blood Diamond, probably a top 
20, one of my top 20 movies, um, called Blood Diamond. It's about a man named Solomon Vandy, who was a fisherman in Sierra Leone. It's about the diamond trade in Africa in the 90s. Uh, so Solomon Vandy has a beloved son named Dia, Dia Vandy. It's uh, D-I-A, based on a true story loosely. So Dia has been taken captive by the Lord's Resistance Army. And if you know anything about the Lord's Resistance Army, uh, they drugged young teenagers. They would lie to them. They would brainwash them. They would lie to them about their family. Their family hates them. Their family turned on them. Their family's not looking for them. They trained these young boys to be killers. And they would give them new names. And they give Dia's name as See No More. See No More. And the movie is all about Solomon going all over Africa looking for Dia and risking his life to find Dia. And when he finally finds Dia, uh, Dia has a, a gun pointed right at his father's head, ready to kill him. And so Solomon uh, slowly begins to walk towards his son. And his, son, uh, his son's hand begins to shake as he walks towards him. And you don't know what's going to happen. And this is what Solomon says. He says, Dia, what are you doing? Dia, look at me. Look at me. What are you doing? You are Dia Vandi of the proud Minde tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you. She waits by the fire making plantains and palm oil stew. And your sister, Inyanda, and the new baby, the cows wait for you, Dia. And Babu, the wild dog, who minds no one but you. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. And I'm not going to tell you what happens at that point. Uh, I'm famous for spoiling the endings of movies. I'm going to let you watch this one. But uh, I don't... I want to tell you what happened with Dia and what he did, but I'll tell you what we did. And what we did is we pulled the trigger and, uh, and we shot the one who came to us to tell us who we were, to save us, to give us his righteousness. Even as he came to us in love, uh, we crucified him. But at that very moment of crucifixion, it was like the prodigal son when he comes home and the father takes off his filthy rags of all his attempts to be righteous. And the father puts on the robe of inheritance, the robes of righteousness, and gives them to the son. And at the very moment of our most horrible act, um, when, we were, when we were the very lowest moment of a human race, at that moment, God gives us, pours upon us all of his righteousness. This is a verse we read earlier. And I close with this. For our sake, God made him to be sin. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this meal is the exchange that I was just talking about. In this meal, um, we have the death of Christ portrayed and the resurrection of Christ portrayed. And the death of Christ is all of our unrighteousness being absorbed by him. And the resurrection of Christ is all of his power and righteousness given to us, laid upon us like a robe from nowhere, coming from nowhere, just put upon us. And we're not going to be able to celebrate this tonight. 
although we long to do so. Um, and I cannot wait for that day, hopefully sooner than later, where we will come again together at Calvary Moravian Church and walk down the aisles and put out our hands and receive the supper. But until that day, we wait. And I'm going to pray for us as we move to our last song of worship. Lord, thank you for the gospel and a time of hardship. Thank you that I know for me, when I don't work, I don't feel productive, then I feel worthless and I feel like I have no purpose and no meaning. And this message from Romans tells us exactly the opposite. And it tells us, no, we are exactly the same amount pleasing to you, exactly the same amount accepted by you, never a moment less loved by you or delighted in by you. Help us to believe that, God, as we sing this last song.